Hello, welcome to the Dinner Ladies Save the World podcast. I'm Sharon Friel, Professor of Health Equity at the Australian National University. The Dinner Ladies is a group of female professors at the ANU. And over the past year or so, we've gotten together every month over dinner where we talk about life, our research, politics, dogs, that sort of stuff. But most importantly, we support each other with the challenging everyday stuff of university life as senior female academics. And I thought we could all do with just a little bit of support in these very strange times. And given the dinner ladies' expertise across many issues, we thought it might be useful to get together to discuss some of the very real challenges that we're all facing at the moment in light of COVID-19. But rather than dwell on the problem, we're going to try and highlight some of the ways forward, some little rays of hope. And so, we bring you the Dinner Ladies Save the World podcast. Over virtual dinner, and yes, sadly, it's over virtual dinner whilst we're all still in lockdown. Uh, our episodes are all anchored around COVID-19, but we do cover a much broader sweep of issues that are interconnected and affecting humanity as we know it. We've spoken about inequality, social cohesion, the tragedy of politics, questions of security, ethics and civil liberties, and communications. And tonight we'll speak about uh, matters to do with climate change, because yes, these are all connected to COVID-19. So just before we begin, it's the 12th of May 2020. Uh, there are more than 4.2 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide, and very sadly, more than 287,000 deaths. In Australia, where we record the podcast, there are 6,970 cases, and 97 deaths. So in this episode, I'm joined again by Helen, Helen Sullivan. Uh, Helen, you might remember, is the director of the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. She's a political sociologist uh, by training, many years uh, of working in local government and has been a, an academic in public policy for a very, very long time. Not that long. Very, very old. Oh, yeah, I was just <laughs> going to say, we're, we're not that old, you know, it's been a long time, but it's not that long. <laughs> <laughs> and so tonight we thought we'd get together again and we're going to speak about the global consumptogenic system. Yes, I promise we'll explain what that means. Um, and this relationship between the environment, climate change and COVID-19. So, uh, well, let me kick off, Helen, and just sort of uh, for people who are listening to us, uh, I, I do think it's really important for us to, you know, of course, it's all consuming at the moment, COVID-19 is all consuming. But really just to remember that there were big health, social and environmental issues that were very challenging for societies BC before COVID. Um, it feels like it's been around that long. Um, and, but what COVID has done is shine a spotlight on these issues. I think, you know, we've spoken about in some of the previous episodes about the spotlight on uh, that it's shone on uh, health inequalities, social inequalities, um, and of course the economic impact of the pandemic really increasing those in inequalities going forward. And then there is this uh, relationship with environment and what existed before in terms of environmental destruction um, including climate change and actually that is going to kill far more people than COVID-19 ever can uh, which I think is a very sobering fact 
And so it is really important for us in our deliberations of moving forward that we recognize this connection between uh, the environment and pandemics. And in fact, just today, uh, Johan Rockstrom, who is really one of the world's uh, leading earth scientists, he uh, spoke about uh, recognizing that the root cause of COVID-19 is the unsustainable world of the Anthropocene. And you know how do, how does that happen? Well, for living in the Anthropocene, you know this uh, ecological epoch that we are living in, um, deforestation, other forms of land clearing, land conversion, what that does is it drives exotic species out of their sort of natural habitat into man-made. Uh, yes, I was going to say human-made, man-made environments. Um, and where they then interact and they breed new strains of disease. And we, we think that's got something to do with this particular pandemic. So we've got this system of environmental destruction, the relationship with health before the pandemic, but that's shining a light on the fact that the environment and pandemics are very closely connected. And then the environmental destruction and um, particularly climate change really then exacerbating um, the existing inequalities that we see within society, impacts on livelihoods, displacement of people and so on. So we've got these big systems and I suppose that's what we want to speak about tonight, isn't it? And, and what on earth do we do about that? And it's it's both a, a question of understanding uh, what a system is and um, you know how we how we visualize or conceptualize a system, but also how we use thinking about systems as ways of better understanding what the issues are and what some of the solutions might be. And I'm thinking particularly in terms of uh, the book that you wrote, Climate Change and the People's Health, where you talk both about um, systems as a, a way of understanding what's going on, but then make a very strong call in the latter part of the book to say, we really need to think about how we do our research differently so that it is more effectively aligned with systems understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, for, for people who, like me, who study the policy process and um, the interaction between policy and, and politics, mm. um, you know, there's something very appealing, attractive, um, sensible about thinking about ecosystems, you know, systems generally. Um, but in practical terms, how you turn that into something that can be influential in policy um, and can be persuasive to politicians, mm -hmm. uh, I think is incredibly challenging. So I wonder if we could start by just thinking through why it is that you have come to the view that systems are important to understand the, the dilemma that we find ourselves in. Um, and and maybe then go on to explain uh, the 
consumptogenic system that you speak particularly about in the book i know i ha i always have to think about how i'm going to say that it's, it's not an easy term to use <laughs> yes I know. Yeah, you're, strangely you're not the first person to say that to me <laughs> um well and, and thank you for that shameless plug uh, of the book brandy uh, who's listening uh, the book is called <laughs> climate change in the people's health um but yeah yeah so this this idea of the consumptogenic system was really trying to make the point of that this interdependence between a whole load of um so public policy private uh, sector policies uh, ways of organising society, ways of governing, uh, the values that are embedded uh, within uh, those mod models of governing uh, within the institutional and social norms. And that really since the Industrial Revolution, since then and since that point where we've been as, as humankind contributing to uh, this incredible uh, degradation uh, of the of the planetary uh, system and the earth system uh, not all planets just the earth system as far as i know um, that understanding that they are driving these policies ways of governing norms uh, societal norms institutional norms these are all driving this excess production uh, and human consumption of, of products, uh, of creating behaviours, of creating desires uh, around unhealthy and environmentally harm harmful things. And so it was trying to make the point of it's not just us as individuals, as consumers, that are the problem. It's this web of factors that are so interconnected uh, and they're and, and changing and reinforcing each other. Um, you know, the, the, the basic you know, the basic system uh, within that is the economic system that's predicated on uh, profit you know that's what it's is about um, and to meet that profit it has to have production and if that's going to continue then people need to want it and you know so it feedback it, there's this feedback so th that was the the idea of this um consumptogenic system that was just creating this production and consumption um which is not good for health and it's not good for the environment and happens in a very unequal way mm. sort of between countries within uh, populations within countries as well so what is it about the the system the consumptogenic system uh, that that pushes us into things being unhealthy uh, things be inequalities being exacerbated and I'm, I'm put in mind of uh, a recent BBC television series called Years and Years written by Russell T Davis where there's a brilliant scene which I watched just before uh, we came on air um, where Anne Reid the one of the lead characters talks about 
um, how it's all our fault, this mess that we've got ourselves into, because this is a, you know, a series about a dystopian future. And she argues that it's all the fault of the one pound t-shirt. And the, the fact that, you know, we all love the one pound t-shirt because it's cheap and because we don't really need to think too much about it. Um, and when you, but when you look at it, you know, only five pence of that one pound t-shirt goes to the shopkeeper and, you know, a much, 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 much tinier percentage of um, the profit that's made goes to the person probably in Bangladesh who actually made the t-shirt. And so what's, I think what's interesting to me is, you know, is a consumptogenic system necessarily a system that is um, inherently going to um, exacerbate inequalities? Or is there something about the way in which the system has evolved that has meant that it, it has had these, these impacts? Yeah, I, mean, I think you're, you're spot on. I think, well, I, I suppose the, the premise of the term a consumptogenic system is, you know, it's a very sort of normative thing of mm. it's not good because these things have emerged from it. And we'll get to the, the point in the discussion, I hope, of saying, well, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, the, you know, the system does not have to operate like that. And it's certainly as we come out of post-COVID-19 and the recovery from all of that, we've got the opportunity to change it, to change that system. But just going back to your um, point of the, you know, the one pound t-shirt or, you know, the cheap food, um, the cheap flights that, you know, that, that they're, they're sort of deliberate, I would say quite deliberate strategies of a, a consumptogenic system you know it's the, the system only operates if people want things and what is it that drives us you know, as in a, in a mass sense um, excess availability very affordable things uh, and very acceptable things and uh, well your example of the, the t-shirt now, of course, there's been a movement to say that that's not acceptable. Um, but, you know, for a long, long time, we as the general public loved the fact that we could get these really cheap clothes, cheap food, cheap flights and, and so on. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example, which is with the, the, the food side of things. So yeah, I'm originally from Glasgow and from the east end of Glasgow and you know, we pride ourselves on deep fried Mars bars. Um, but it is actually true in a sense of deep fried Mars bars are readily available. Mm. You know, it's not just, it, 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 they're readily available. Um, they're very affordable. So, you know, you go down to the chip shop and you can get the deep fried Mars bar for quite a reasonable uh, price. And they're also very socially acceptable. Now, so you might go into the chip shop and, you know, you buy your deep fried mash bar, but you can also go to a very posh restaurant mm. uh, in the West End of Glasgow. Uh, and, you know, what's served on the plate is this deep fried mash bar. It's all zhushed up and, you know, it looks quite beautiful, but it's still a deep fried mash bar. Um, so the idea of within that food system, uh, making food super cheap, and I haven't even spoken about the fact of yeah, who gets the money out of all of that. I mean, your point of the, the t-shirts was spot on in terms of the, 
you know, the people making those t-shirts aren't the people who are reaping the benefits, uh, financial benefits. So, so yeah, so the consumptionic system is inherently flawed uh, if, if you're concerned about the environment, health and social equity, it is inherently flawed. But it may be worth us just talking about like who benefits from that, because if you're thinking about, if we think these sorts of systems need, should, could change, then there's a load of interests at play in there. And look, you know this very well, you're within politics and policy, just the, the range of interests that are being pursued in, in any sort of any one policy issue, let alone this kind of global uh, consumptogenic uh, system. And yeah, so maybe should we talk about power? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, yeah, we should certainly talk about power. And I was wondering if we could connect it to um, something that you've sort of alluded to, but I think it's worth exploring a bit more, um, which is the idea of desire and the ways in which we are all um, encouraged, enabled, um, enticed to, to desire things that um, either we don't need or we know aren't good for us, deep fried Mars bar, whether it's judged up or not. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and how that, um, how important that is in the, in sustaining that kind of consumptogenic system. Because if we stood back and thought, actually, I don't need this, or I don't want this, or it's not good for me, um, then setting aside people for whom there isn't an alternative, you know, if you're going to eat a deep fried Mars bar or go hungry, then there's not much of an alternative. But for people who can, um, you know, there is this element, strong element of desire that's built into um, the consumptogenic system, it seems to me, that just keeps us always wanting more of whatever it is. Yeah, and I think I think you've touched on such an important point in that because very often it becomes about the individual responsibility to just behave differently. Yep, if we want to do something about the environment, if you want to do something about health, you behave differently. But what you've just uh, pointed towards, I think, is the kind of the the systemic uh, factors that create those desires, reinforce those. It's not surprising that many of the large, large uh, companies spend a fortune on marketing, you know, advertising and marketing, um, because it because it makes a difference. It makes us want these things. So these and so those sorts of um, structural factors that embed the desires and make it that kind of, you know, almost it just becomes a cultural norm that, you know, of course, of course I'll buy a t-shirt and throw it away the next day or, you know, like it's just so socially acceptable. Fortunately, I think that is changing. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that then begs the question of, from a policy, from a regulatory perspective, what can be done to manage those sorts of things like advertising and, and marketing? Um, how do you shift uh, 
cultural norms? How do you how do you break that strong uh, connection with with that desire? I love it. I, I do love the sort of conversations about um, in in the food. Like I do quite a bit in the food system space, and you know, say well. You know, there's so much, uh, so much choice available to to people now, and you know, it's it, so therefore it's that individual choice. Um, and I just say, look down the row of the supermarket. Are you telling me the fact that there are so many brands and options for the same type of food? Are you telling me that that's not there to make me just want that constantly? I don't have choice. I've got choice of brands, but I don't have choice about you know, what I do and don't uh, consume. To an extent, of course I do. Um, but yeah, I think all of those sort of structural factors are really important for us to look at if we want to um, shift those sorts of desires. Otherwise, it becomes about us and our mm. individual responsibility. And I'm not suggesting for a second that that's not important, but mm. there are these big structural drivers as, as well. Mm. Yeah, and it's much easier to focus on what you as the individual should do. Um, and the fact that if you're not doing it, you are somehow a failure. Yeah. Um, and rather than think is what's going on in a in a systemic way or a regulatory way or a policy way that is actually encouraging particular kinds of behaviors and i suppose that the the other thing that that strikes me about this is you know there is the the argument that that you know we have to take account of that you know cheap food um isn't necessarily always bad and um for many people uh you know this kind this kind of production has been the difference between being able to live reasonably well or not and you know there's a you know there's a powerful group of people who say you know this has been partly about how developing economies have have um you know come to be able to both feed themselves but also you know to develop their own middle class or whatever it is so i think you know we need to be cognizant that that there is um a, an argument for globalization for want of a better um mm. word um but also that that has has not resulted necessarily in us thinking through how can we do that in a sustainable way and and the the obvious uh connection to covid of course is that you know i've, I've had you know numerous colleagues say to me my goodness things vegetables certain vegetables are now so expensive in the supermarket because um, the supply chain is is you know has been disrupted, um, and Meg Simons, a brilliant brilliant Australian journalist, did a piece um, for the Seven AM show, and I think she did an article in the Saturday paper or the Monthly, can't remember which, about this about you know what what is it about the supply chain that COVID has just completely disrupted, and mm. you know what does that tell us about? Um, both the potential but also the limitations of these globalized supply chains particularly in the context of food um yeah I, and and i think we'll just pick up on your point of the um you know, glob globalization uh, and how it has been very important in terms of lifting people out of poverty absolutely um 
I, I think it, it, it's sort of worth us saying, so globalisation for what purpose and for whom? And what you were pointing towards there, I think, when we're, you're just talking about the supply chain, is the the global the, in food the, the global supply chain is now absolutely controlled by a really small number of companies and so what you've got is this concentration uh, of power in the, the food supply chain which then creates all sorts of and, and, and so who benefits from that well what that does of course is provide the market for local farmers but the local farmers are then um, locked in that you get this sort of dependency on that you know the prices get set the what they can grow gets set and and that you know, that's very helpful in some instances but being able to adjust and be able to adjust with environmental pressures um, been able to move foods around, which is what we're seeing with the, the, the situation with the, the supply chain. And um, you know, I think there's an argument that's being made is the length of the supply chain is just too long now. And there was a, a gorgeous um, op-ed in the New York Times uh, a couple of days ago, I think, from uh, a brilliant uh, scholar, uh, Jennifer Clapp. She's over in, in Canada. She's a political scientist who does a, a lot of work in food systems and just really kind of picking up on some of the points that you've been making of these supply chains just being so unwieldy now and being so just so controlled controlled by big agribusiness by manufacturers uh, and by the big retail uh, giants and you know being able to get things moved around is just a problem and the price hike of course some people can afford that, many people can't, and you know, what happens if that continues for prolonged periods of time? Uh, yeah, I mean, we could have a whole discussion about uh, how that connects to social policy, but we do, probably don't have enough time to do that. <laughs> I think that's probably another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so, you know, we've talked a bit about why you know how this has come into being and, and why it is that they're hard to change. So, you know, you've talked a lot about the interests that surround the maintenance of the system as it is um, and uh, the way in which we are, you know, more or less um, bought into that as, as, as individual consumers. Um, and you've talked also about the, the sort of structural forces. So that sounds, you know, pretty depressing. You know, if we put that combination of things together in a system that says, well, essentially what we've got is, you know, both the, the structural, the, the actor-based um, elements of a system, you know, are all pointing in a particular direction. Um, we've established a set of norms that legitimize particular kinds of behavior. Um, and we've made it incredibly difficult for there to be, for people to conceive of something that might be different, you know, so that kind of path dependency of, well, you know, yeah. this is just the way it's done. So, so how do we begin to think differently about this? And, and does systems thinking, I mean, it may not, but is systems thinking for you particularly useful in helping us to think differently? Yeah, I, I absolutely. Cause I think, so what systems thinking allows us to do is, you see this whole 
whole web of actors that are in that system. And that includes, so I'll, I'll keep with the food um, one just, just for sort of brevity sake. So I've spoken, yeah, about you know the, some of the big structural economic powers within the system. Um, but there are also people, actors, groups, uh, institutions involved in there. You know, there's things like the, the Food Sovereignty Alliance, there's public health uh, organisations, you know, there's just this incredible report just published today, um, the Global Nutrition Report, that's, uh, you know, that's WHO, it's FAO, it's major um, sort of global institutions and major international uh, non-government organisations, they're all part of the, the food system. And what that means is because we, we all have agency, you know, it's, it's not that there's just these big structural forces and all these other sort of public interest people or groups can do nothing. You know, they, we all have agency. And I think there's some, well, I'd say sort of two things um, that fill me with hope, um, because we do want to talk about hope as we um, sort of move towards the end of, so the disruption that we are seeing right now uh, with COVID-19, uh, I mean, who would have thought that, you know, just here in Australia, yeah, for, for people that are listening to us, yeah, just to connect with the, the environment again. So in Australia, we had uh, drought, fire, storms, um, we've got the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef, and now we've got uh, COVID-19, and that's all just been, you know, sort of the end of 2019 into this but if you think about what has happened, so you could say, here's all these environmental factors overlaying these structural things. And you, know, you spoke about the path dependency, the norms that are in place. And you would think, oh my goodness, is you know, how do we come out of that? But you know, governments have put a whole load of um, positive uh, policies in place communities have mobilized and you know the support within community is phenomenal and um, there's within the the food uh, space there's now a, an energized uh, informal network within australia um this marvelous uh, woman up in sydney Sinead boylan has uh, sort of activated this uh, food network concerned about you know, some of the issues that we've been speaking about um so i just think that's a dynamic system that is recalibrating. Mm. And so for, for the, the different interests, now the, the opportunity is to bring those alternative interests to the fore. Yeah. And so I'm, so I'm going to come back to you and say, well, because what we were speaking about in, uh, in the, one of the previous podcasts was around leadership and different mm. forms of mm. leadership and you know the recalibration of this system means that our different leaders different forms of leadership emerging isn't there um mm. so that that has to fill us with a wee bit of hope I, I think so and i think certainly the um the way in which um for example in, in australia not just in australia but um, this is where we are, um, the way in which the public sector uh, more broadly has has been able to adapt 
very quickly and to move very nimbly in a way that, you know, we have been told for decades that, you know, the public sector is, you know, slow and, you know, lethargic and bloated and all of those things. And yet here we have a crisis and what we see is a response um, that is, uh, it's not perfect, nobody's suggesting it is, but it's been quite remarkable in the, in the way in which um, the system as, as a whole has responded. So it's, yes, it's both about leadership. Absolutely, you need people to, uh, to lead. And of course, um, this happens in, in, in very different ways. There's, you know, there's political leadership, but there's also the kinds of community leadership you've mm. been talking about. But you do also then need people to follow you and people to respond um, in a way that um, is perhaps for them actually quite risky because, um, you know, nobody really knows um, what the outcome is going to be, but people are making decisions about how to respond to need and to um, circumstances in, in a way that they've all been told that they can't do because they're, you know, just not good enough. So I think that's been quite remarkable and that's something that it's really mm. important to, to hold on to. Yeah. I think the challenge, and I've been thinking a, a lot about this, um, for something I'm, I'm writing at the moment, is how you move from that kind of leadership in crisis, uh, which is incredibly important, to a more longer term leadership out of crisis into what's next and how you can reimagine a, a what's next in a way that doesn't um, just deal with I mean again you know people are coming up with all of these phrases it's, it's what you know I think it's one of the ills of our time you know you know I'm not the least bit interested in whether or not we are able to snap back um, you know I mean that again you know it's a phrase which just means nothing almost uh, but becomes very powerful um, it seems to be the opportunity that we have is to really do things differently but that requires a different kind of leadership you know and it requires a resilience and a uh, a resolve that that um, is, yeah, I think is going to be testing for um, for everybody. But you know, we we do have some very good examples of of people who've led in crisis, and and that should give us some hope to come back to to your point about what might be possible. Um, and also, I think you know, you're right, absolutely, that you know, we do as individuals and communities have agency. Um, we've just forgotten some of us that that we have it and that we mm. can use it yeah um, and and that that's um you know and i suppose one of the big conversations at the moment is is about you know pension funds and the way in which they invest their money and how you know whether and how uh, we have an influence in that well of course we all do those of us who are part of pension funds but we never think about it yeah so i think i think there's much more opportunity there now because of a realization that we we are we have made a terrible mess of things um, and that if we are to survive then we, we do have to do things differently and it sounds extraordinary to say that but but i think it's i think it is the case that um you know it's one of the things the pandemic has done one of the things i suppose that climate change has never managed to do uh, which is to bring the reality of our actions up close and personal to us yeah yeah and i i know I, I, I think you're absolutely right and wouldn't it be fantastic for us to to know 
as a, a nation here in Australia, nations all over the world, and also that global collaboration, because I think that's also one of the things that this is really highlighted is the importance of the global collaboration. But to start to have those multiple levels of, of conversations where we all sit very comfortably with the unknown mm. and very comfortably with the complexity and very comfortably with like not being in our comfort zones. Uh, you know, it's just, I don't know who, who said it of uh, creativity happens at the edge of your comfort zone. Um, but what is, and, and for that to be facilitated in, in a way that is saying, okay, well, as we, as we come out of this, uh, what is society about? It's, you know, I get going back to what we were speaking about at the beginning of your for what purpose? Mm. Um, and let's imagine th then those poli public policy, business models, and uh, civil society actions, you know, the divestment movement. Mm. You know, let's imagine what all of that will look like for a purpose, which is, I would like to think, one that's about better, greater equality, environmental protection, and human health and well-being and that we you know, we then start to organize uh, around that we've been speaking about um you know this idea of governing disruption for for these sorts of purposes and i think that's the only way we can uh, completely recalibrate this current consumptogenic system um, but i think you're uh, you've been pointing to the fact that um yeah, there, there is hope. We see it springing up in all, all sorts of ways. Well, listen, I'm, I'm conscious of the time. I'm conscious of our, our listeners um, not having to listen to us go on and on and on. We, um, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure they'd be delighted, but you know, we, we, we should probably let people get back to their lives. Um, <laughs> So I hope that was a, a little bit hopeful for people who have been listening to us. It's always a bit challenging, isn't it, when you start to put sort of climate change and equality and global pandemics into the mix. You, know, you could end up just in the depth of despair. But I, I hope um, what Helen and I have been speaking about uh, in terms of these systems, systems are never static, they're always changing. There are these um, different forms of leadership. There are examples of of positive changes taking place um, in Australia and elsewhere uh, around the world. And just a very important reminder of that collective uh, agency in helping in going forward, uh, helping to shape what this new non-consumptogenic system will look like. Would that be, would that be a, fair, a fair call, Helen? Yeah, I think so. And I think also being prepared to face up to people who say you're not being realistic you don't understand the real world you know it's all um you know much more complicated than that um and i think we've we've listened to that for a very long time it hasn't got us very far um <laughs> and i and and so you know now is the time for for alternatives and if that means that you know we risk being called naive and not understanding real politique and all of those things well so be it yeah um, absolutely absolutely so a, a call to action from us um to 
get involved, make your voice heard, be part of a collective um, and help shape, you know, have a voice in those decision-making processes uh, as we go forward. So we should probably finish up our virtual dinner. Uh, you've been listening to Professors Helen Sullivan and Sharon Friel. Uh, we are two of the dinner ladies. Many thanks for listening to our podcast, Dinner Ladies Save the World. Uh, and of course, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on the Policy Pod uh, at policyforum.net. Thank you very much. <laughs>